Hello and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm Martin Rogers. I'm here with Steve O'Neill and Akash Pam. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Martin. Welcome, Akash. Cheers, Martin. So, Steve, quite a lot has happened since we last met. Could you bring us up to date? I mean, it certainly has, and um, summer is supposed to be a quiet month, uh, or quite a few months, and uh, that has not been the case. Uh, I'm going to pick out three things um, that have happened. Firstly, obviously, uh, Boris Johnson is now Prime Minister, as we thought he won a very comfortable um, uh, victory for the Tory leadership election, uh, and as he said, it's PM. Equally, Joe Swinton is now Lib Dem leader, similarly winning a comfortable victory. Uh, and the third thing I'll pick out is a Lib Dem win in the Brecon and, uh, if I say this right, Radnorshire uh, by-election, where the Lib Dems won um, fairly... Well, it actually was a narrower than most people thought victory where Jane Dodds became the MP. So those are the three things that I'd pick out um, relevant to, I think, what we're going to speak, speak about for the rest of this podcast. I've not mentioned the uh, panorama on anti-Semitism Labour Party, the Hong Kong protests, the ongoing Brexit commentary, Trump, the rest of it. There's quite a lot else, but mm. I've focused fairly tightly in on British politics there. So, Ankesh, we have a new government under a new Prime Minister. Is it too early at this stage to say what the main policy platform of the government is beyond Brexit? Have they been coherent enough to say, get an idea of what they're about? Even on Brexit, I think <laughs> we slightly wait to, to hear precisely what, what he's going to do. And I, and, and I think we'll come on to talk about that more um, in, in a few minutes. Um, that aside, I mean, there's been a lot of announcements. Um, I mean, new prime ministers want to make a splash, uh, want to sort of, you know, show what, 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 what they're about. Um, but I think when you compare it to Theresa May, I mean, when she came in, back in, in 2016, as well as, of course, inheriting uh, responsibility for Brexit, um, she did go out and try to set out a kind of uh, ideological vision for, you know, reforming the society, repairing its social fabric and so on. And I don't think we've seen something quite like that from Boris. I mean, instead, it's been a series of lots and lots of spending commitments more money for schools, more money for the NHS, more money for prisons, more police officers. It feels very much like uh, a government positioning itself for a general election um, and yeah, moving beyond the years of austerity. Probably we're going to hear more about tax cuts at some point soon. There's going to be the spending review in the autumn when this, these, these sort of vague commitments presumably will be turned into concrete numbers. Um, but yes, I mean, it's that kind of, uh, of government at the moment. I wouldn't say there's a sort of clear strategy behind it all, but there's some probably clever political tactics. I think it's interesting, personally, that there seems to be, given some of the announcements, there seems to be a desire from the new administration to uh, go after the UKIP vote. Now, I talk about the UKIP vote there, but the part of the um, electorate that cuts across certainly both main parties, which uh, can be seen as left on the economy, but, uh, and I have a slight problem with this view, but right on crime, such as sort of tough um, on security and sort of crime. And to the, some extent, the uh, appointment of Priti Patel as Home Secretary, given her former support for the death penalty can be seen as part of a, 
desire for the government to be seen to be tough, tough on crime. Uh, Matthew Goodwin, who's obviously written extensively on UKIP, talks about this as the sort of sweet spot of British politics, which is a, a significant increase in spending on uh, the NHS, but also um, more money. So more money for the NHS, but tougher action on sort of crime and security. So, um, Steve, is the new Johnson administration a disaster for moderates? Well, you're, you're right to pose the question because the music, as you described, um, with our new Home Secretary and indeed our, our new Foreign Secretary Dominic Rabb, is that uh, the cabinet does look quite right wing. Um, Chancellor, too. The Chancellor. Uh, the Chancellor, I think, is interesting. Because one of the things I was going to say about um, the Johnson administration, and I think Martin alluded to this too, is actually on the economy, it's a bit more to the left. As, and Chavit and Javid, I think, is expected to be more of a spending Chancellor than Philip Hammond was. Um, you could see him as uh, right-wing up on other issues. The other thing to say where moderates could find some um, small comfort is that the um, the sort of ministers appointed do have a reasonably diverse makeup. We have had a reasonable number of women in the cabinet and uh, those of ethnic minorities. So there's a few things, if you wanted to be particularly optimistic, you could point to, but generally it looks like a fairly, fairly right-wing government and not one that's great for moderates. So I, I think Javid is a very interesting case because he's someone who started off being quite uh, free market, quite Thatcherite, but actually um, has a admitted himself to being on a bit of a journey in government that having spent his time in government he's said to have seen the impact the positive impact that government intervention state intervention can play mm-hmm. so perhaps he's more moderate than uh, people give him credit for certainly given his original positions yeah I mean he's definitely he definitely comes from a Thatcherite, you know, pro-business, small state, deregulation kind of uh, background. Um, but as we've already discussed, yeah, I mean, a lot of the early announcements have been around spending more. I mean, I'm not sure spending more automatically means left wing. I think governments like to spend more when they can afford it, particularly if they think think in elections um, on, the, on the horizon, which, which surely it is. Um, so I view it much more... In, in, through, through that tactical lens, as I've said, rather than reflecting a sort of underlying view of, of the role of the state. I mean, I think with, with Javid um, and the economic strategy, um, the, the, the spending review this autumn will obviously be a key moment. I mean, that, that is a time when the Chancellor is the centre of attention, not the Prime Minister. You know, I mean, obviously he can't do anything that the Prime Minister disagrees with, but he will have, have, the, have the stage to to set out his vision well if we're going to talk about the upcoming election as we all seem fairly clear there's going to be one for too long let's let's go to the polls so akash first to you and what has happened to the polls since boris johnson has become the prime minister how are labor and the tories faring yeah so i think um in some respects they've changed less than you than you might have thought would be the case or, or, or less than some of the commentary might suggest. I mean, there has been a bounce for the Conservatives. Um, so prior to Boris taking over, 
um, the Conservatives had been in the kind of mid-twenties range across most of the pollsters um, for, for, for a couple of months at least. And since he's taken over, they've been more in the upper 20s, low 30s range. So they've gone up a little bit. Um, that seems mainly to have come from um, the Brexit party falling back. Um, so they're now in the sort of low teens, mid teens kind of range. Um, previously, they were up in the, in the 20s in quite a few polls. Um, and there seems to be, therefore, what you'd expect, really, a new prime minister, um, who's who's seen as 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 a, a, an actual believer in Brexit, uh, committed to taking the country out by the end of October, and a number, but by no means all of of those who'd, who'd gone over to the Brexit party, seem to be for now um, giving him giving the government the benefit of the doubt. I mean, my reading of that is, it's probably quite a soft position, um, and very much dependent on them actually being able to deliver on. Uh, on Brexit by the end of October and they must know that um, that if obviously they even if they have to ask for another extension let alone if the whole thing starts to unravel um, you would potentially expect a big switch back to uh, to Nigel Farage. Um, meanwhile Labour haven't really moved very much in any direction I mean they the polls do have quite a range with them um, from sort of low 20s up to, to, to low 30s, but they're mostly in the kind of mid-20s range, it looks to me. But that's roughly where they were before the changes of leadership from the other parties. Lib Dems haven't really moved much, but they were obviously already polling pretty well. Um, they're in the sort of yeah, high teens range. Um, and uh, yeah, those are, those are the main parties. SNP still look dominant in Scotland. Um, hard to see with Plaid because there wasn't that much Welsh polling, but I think they're doing fairly well compared to where they've historically been. There is an election on the horizon, but there are a few figures out that might give pause to a new Prime Minister and his advisers. What is very unusual is for a new Prime Minister to have their net ratings in unfavourable territory. Now, uh, one of the double-edged swords of Boris Johnson's high profile is that a lot of people have formed both a positive and a negative view of him already. And I think it's fair to say that with polling, once people's views of politicians are entrenched, they don't tend to change in an enormous amount. So how much of this is just due to Johnson's role in the Brexit referendum? Difficult to say because he probably was seen as more liberal conservative during his time as London mayor but so YouGov survey from 21st to the 30th of July so it's possible things have um, changed since then so it's total across everyone total favorable 34 total unfavorable 55 so it's not a, a great place to be starting for, for Boris Johnson a more recent opinion poll from the 8th of August 84% of those who currently back the Conservative Party think Boris Johnson would be the best Prime Minister. 10% of Labour uh, current voters think Boris Johnson would be the best Prime Minister. 63% of UKIP current voters, 79% of Brexit voters. So this seems to indicate that Johnson himself is quite a sort of divisive figure between pro-Brexit supporting him, willing to give benefit of the doubt, and those against Brexit not. But... Just wanted to finish this little segment with one poll. From the 1st to the 8th of August, YouGov polled 1,000 
just over a thousand adults living in the 20 most marginal Tory held seats were the Lib Dems and the main challenger. The Lib Dems in this voting intention poll come out one point ahead. It's well within the margin of error, but surely that will give pause to Conservatives thinking about going for another uh, election very soon. So, Steve, unpack all of these numbers and give us an idea what's going on and why. Well, there's so much there and the picture is so kind of, I think, mixed because as Akash said, the, the polls are looking a bit better for the Tories right now than they were um, with a sort of Boris boost or whatever you call it. Um, uh, and then as you said, there's lots of things that are quite negative for them. Um, picking up the point about Boris Johnson himself, I think it's quite hard to, to say whether perceptions of him are coloured by him as a character or whether he is just being um, uh, perceived in a certain way depending on how people look at Brexit and is it that he's a divisive figure or is it just that we are in a nation of people that are divided um, I think that's impossible to say without without sort of different kind of focus group work I suspect a bit of both on the on the marginals thing with the Lib Dems I think that is interesting because remember we're coming from a, a place where the Lib Dems have a very low number of seats compared to what they had in 2015 um, and it, it stands to regions that should they pick up in the polls those are back into play um, and as I have said polling around you know, minimum about 16%, which is a lot higher than they've been for a while. So it would, it would just stand to region that a bunch of the seats that the Tories won in 2015 and then, and then held in 2017 are going to be more vulnerable now. I think that's just the way it is. And that's more because the Conservatives are sort of 10, 12 points down on what they won mm-hmm. in 2017, mm-hmm. uh, rather than Lib Dems. Uh, well, it's both, obviously, but... Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just from the headline figures of how the Conservatives have fallen since in, since then and Lib Dems have risen, yeah, you'd obviously expect a lot of those a lot of those marginals to be very very uh, very very winnable for the for the Lib Dems. So yeah, it's interesting that they have they've, they've done that constituency specific polling because often you don't have that data. Mm. You just have to rely on sort of uniform national swing assumptions. Okay, well we've just touched on the Lib Dems. So let's talk a little bit more about the Lib Dems. When I look at uh, who current Lib Dem voters think will be the best Prime Minister, 83% of those polled said neither Boris Johnson nor Jeremy Corbyn will be the best Prime Minister. So surely there's an awful lot of Lib Dem voters potentially to play for. Is this something that's been behind their sort of rise in the polls, do we think? Well, I, I mean, I think both, um, Steve, I liked your, uh, your your framing of the question, you know, is it that Boris is divisive or are we just a very divided society? But the same could be said about Corbyn, right? I mean, both, uh, both the two main party leaders are, you know, <laughs> Marmite leaders in, 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 in many respects. They're not, they're not unifiers. Mm. Neither of them are very good at, at, at reaching across to um, the other side of of the political spectrum so yeah i think um this underlies a lot of what we've talked about on on, on the previous um episodes of this podcast there is a, a something of a, of a disenfranchised middle and that um that's obviously partly behind the, the rise of the lib dems and there's a lot of voters i think who are potentially there to be persuaded if um if they think you know in the classic way voting for smaller parties is not going to be a wasted vote. Hmm. Oh, it's interesting you mentioned Corbyn as well. So the YouGov survey from July, Corbyn's 
favourability net score is minus 50. Johnson's minus 21. Yeah. In terms of to what extent do you approve or disapprove of the job of Boris Johnson? I mean, it's a, this is from the 8th of August, so we give him what, a couple of weeks in Downing Street. Uh, he has a net approval rating of uh, 6% on opinion. Positive 6% is probably worth pointing out. Mm. Whereas Jeremy Corbyn, as leader of the Labour Party, is hold of 20% approve of the job he's doing. How many of them are Conservatives, we don't know. Whereas 60% disapprove. This is all Great British adults, so uh, a net score of minus 40 there, so maybe he's improving. <laughs> Yeah, so, Corbyn being the leader is probably one of the best, re- the, the most likely reasons why uh, a Conservative might want to go for an election mm-hmm. soon, because you just can't imagine Corbyn being there very much longer. And potentially one of the main reasons why the Lib Dems are doing well, arguably. Yeah. So Steve, why aren't the Lib Dems doing better? What's holding them back? Well, I have a slightly different theory about the what sort of explains the Lib Dem vote share at around 20%. Um, and I recall uh, working in DemXQ a few years ago uh, when the polling was quite low during the coalition period, probably, you know, it was down, down in that 8% region. Um, and you might recall when Nick Clegg debated Nigel Farage about Europe way before we even knew we were going to have a referendum on membership of the EU. And the logic then was that um, there's a chunk of people, I and mean, most of the thing, figures that I see is about 15 to 20%. Again, look at the Dem poll numbers, 15 to 20%. About that number of people have quite a strongly, strong feeling attachment to Europe and the European Union. Actually, a similar number of people uh, are quite liberal on migration too, so it wouldn't be a surprise those things are linked. Um, and so I, I think part of the strategy, the kind of bollocks, the Brexit strategy that Lib Dems uh, have had on hand with the last few leaders, um, is looking to sort of own that, that part of the vote. Uh, and what I wonder is, is that they've done about as well as they can do with that now, and that gets you to around this twenty percent mark um, that they're at, and that just just following that strategy on its own might not get you any further. Now that's a hell of a lot about eight percent of the polls, but I wonder if that kind of explains why twenty percent might be about the cap for um, an anti-Brexit party. I suppose the next phase potentially in that strategy would be unite to remain. So how could that? potentially happen and which what sort of effect do we think it might have so this is the idea that a few of the the anti-brexit parties the lib dems the greens potentially applied in uh, in wales would would work together and and in, in certain seats they'd, they'd stand up not stand against mm. each other as they did in the brecon uh by-election yeah I, uh, I, I mean, I think the, the, given the way uh, first past the post works, um, and given the fact that if we're talking about an election soon, when Brexit is still going to be the dominant issue, uh, whether it hasn't yet happened or even if it has just happened, um, surely there'll be a, a, a great tactical logic in, in in doing that. I mean, that's gonna if it, if it were to happen, it would require them to have some negotiations about who gets to stand in which seats exactly how they present themselves to to the public you know do they have a, a, a shared program or is it is it just a sort of tactical alliance I mean I don't I've, I haven't seen a kind of detailed plan for that but 
just in terms of a, 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 an approach to an election, I can see a lot of logic to it for, for those parties. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think it's underpinned by a big assumption that in each of the seats that that's going to happen, there's a clear favourite, there's a clear front runner, and it's not a seat that is up for grabs between these different parties because mainly they're small parties that aren't, they are not often going head to head. So in general, it'll it'll lead to them all having uh, a great chance of getting more MPs, and I can see a situation where. And, you know, the Greens have one MP, they might be looking at picking up a second or a third, and there might be places where the Lib Dems, for example, will allow it to happen to shore up many other seats where the Lib Dems will be front runners. So you can see you can see that. I imagine it will be um, always awkward for political parties to have make these kinds of pacts and there'll be some horse trading and, and back and forward. But as you say, as you both say, you can see some clear advantages for all, all involved. Yeah. yeah. I mean it's, it's it, there's there's advantages for the party as a whole, but um, local activists don't always see it that way. If they've spent years, or indeed local candidates, you know, PPCs who've who've often worked for for many years to to, to be positioned, uh, ready for ready for an opportunity to to stand in the general election, um, people like that aren't going to take kindly necessarily to to, to to an order coming down from Central Party HQ that you've got to stand down for a rival. There's got to be a lot of faith that it's going to work, and mm. they're right. And I think if there's not that faith, then those people you mentioned, Akash, there, they are not going to be keen to <laughs> to to give up the hard work and the votes they've won over mm. that that period of time. So I think we certainly talked about their uh, tactics, but not about any strategy. Perhaps it's beyond um, beyond knowing. But what is the constitutional position at the moment? Uh, there's been talk about no confidence vote happening as soon as Parliament returns from recess. Can that happen? What happens then? Um, what's the sort of constitutional position at the moment and what could potentially happen going forward? Yeah, so there's there's quite a lot of scenarios still um, about how the next, uh, next few weeks and, and, and months play out. Um, and some of those really take us into some murky unknown territory as far as as far as the UK constitution is concerned you know things that have just not happened before and it's very hard to know how things would play out um I mean the starting point is that um we have a new prime minister he's uh, had as we've discussed a bit of a bounce in the polls um but the position in parliament in terms of the arithmetic of course um, remains as it was. Well, in fact, it's even a little bit worse for the Conservatives uh, due to due to defections and um, lost by elections and so on. So, on the face of it, he's got a majority of one, uh, arguably three, if you count a temporarily suspended uh, Tory backbencher. Either way, it's obviously wafer thin. There's a big number big grouping of uh, disaffected um well formerly pro-remain but at least very much anti-no deal uh conservatives some of whom have just been uh, just left government so philip hammond is is the biggest name others like rory stewart as well um and they're clearly maneuvering to to oppose um no deal if that if that indeed is and remains the uh, the Boris Johnson strategy so you know you subtract that kind of a couple of dozen or or, or so uh votes he's deep into um into minority minority territory there are of course some Labour MPs who go the other way 
Um, hard to know exactly how it all plays out. Um, what do the DUP do? Probably, we're not wholly sure about that. But overall, it's on a knife edge for, for him. Um, surely, the question of, of is there going to be a vote on no, no confidence um, is a question of, of when rather than if. Um, and if the opposition moves such a vote by long-established convention, time gets made for it pretty quickly, the vote will happen. We had one, of course, earlier in the year in, in Theresa May. So, yes, I mean, I think we'll almost certainly be seeing a vote of no confidence. Um, if he wins, well, then, then presumably he's secure for a while and can press ahead. Um, if he loses, well, then we're into some of these... Uh, into these um, un, un, unprecedented scenarios. Let's say that um, let's say that the government loses a no confidence vote. What happens then? Let's talk about the fourteen days. Is there enough in the constitution to tell us definitively what would happen in that scenario? I mean, if you base it on how many uh, professors of constitutional law and such like are failing to reach consensus on Twitter, <laughs> I think I would conclude from that that the constitution is, uh, yeah, less than less than 100% clear on this question. I mean, what we do know is, yeah, we have the Fixed Term Parliament Act that says that if you have a vote of no confidence in the precisely specified form set out in that legislation. And if, yeah, if the vote of no confidence is carried, then there's a 14-day period, at the end of which, if no other government um, has won a vote of confidence, um, then there should be an election. Um, but there is potential that in that 14-day period, well, could Boris Johnson uh, seek to, to prorogue Parliament, for example, because in the interim he would remain Prime Minister, might he even sort of refuse to, to leave office unless, you know, because there wouldn't obviously be an alternative majority government, there would be some kind of attempts to, to patch together a government of, of national unity. Exactly what are the mechanisms by which the Prime Minister is forced out in that context and a new government is formed. That's the stuff that isn't really codified. Um, and yeah, we, we, we may see this, uh, we may see this play out. I mean, the other thing that could happen is you could have a different kind of a no confidence vote. So one that isn't under the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, but expresses very clearly no confidence, um, but maybe calls upon a new a new government to be formed and that could by convention if that were carried say a motion saying this house has no confidence in Boris Johnson as prime minister and calls upon her majesty to invite Ken Clark <laughs> for the sake of argument to to try and put together a, a government of national unity if such a motion were, were passed that wouldn't lead to an election under the mm. fixed term parliament act but it would, you would think, by convention, require Boris to to step down. But it's mm. a, it's it's a grey area. Mm. Okay, so let's let's assume that there is a confidence vote held and the government of the day wins. The next step is no deal. Can Parliament stop no deal? Can they can take control of sort of the business of the house? Um, what measures have they got in their hands to to control the government of the day? Once again, 
it's not it's not wholly clear whether even if there's a if there's a if there's a clear majority against no deal which by all accounts there is whether they can outright stop the prime minister if if he's if he's bent on doing that i mean obviously if parliament were to previously have or or even or even now approve the deal the withdrawal agreement then that's one way that you can avoid no deal and that's been a criticism leveled at, at, at quite a few of the um, the Remainers um, who, who, who've been very vocal recently on this question. Like, if you want to do anything to block No Deal, well, you could have backed the withdrawal agreement. Yeah. Um, so there's always that. There is the option of trying to pass legislation against the the wishes of of the government to perhaps force another extension to enable an election to be held or something like that. Um, similar to what sort of happened earlier this year with with the uh, the, the, the Cooper Bowles bill and the extension that happened then um, then you're into questions about you know will there be enough parliamentary time what decisions will John Burkow take and and uh, and so on I mean I think if there's a if there was a really clear majority to pass yeah another another act of parliament requiring another extension based on the precedent of earlier this year, that seems like a possible way that they could at least postpone it, mm. postpone the decision. But in the end, you know, either we agree on a form of Brexit or we revoke Brexit altogether mm. or we leave with no deal. You can't just keep kicking the, de- the can mm. down the road and the EU aren't going to be keen on that either. Mm. So I think it's fair to say that it's not beyond the realm that there could be a general election potentially even this autumn. Can we see the sort of shape that a Boris Johnson-led Conservative Party might take? And if we can, is there a is it a post-austerity uh, sort of shape that it has? Yeah, I think I think a lot of the signs, as we discussed earlier, are that the Conservatives have stopped talking about budget deficits and started talking about spending commitments. That dates back to under Theresa May, and Boris has certainly carried that on. Um, whether that is, uh, I think Akash alluded to this earlier, whether that is just a reflection of political reality or uh, an actual change in approach economically, I think is quite hard to tell at this point. But it does look like broadly we are moving away from at least the narrative of austerity, or in fact, it's dead. We've moved away from the narrative of austerity. Okay, so has the middle ground then? So it's the political centre ground moved on from the need to tackle the deficit to after seven years or more potentially uh, many years perhaps now of of the reality of austerity. Is it the case now that the the public have moved on and now want to see more money into the NHS and uh, schools and the public institutions that they actually interact with? I think it's fairly clear the public have moved on. An interesting question is how fundamental has that been? So one narrative is the one you just described, where roll back 2008-2009, people thought we have a huge, and it was factually true, it was a huge issue of budget deficit, we need to do something about it, that is one of the big economic issues of our, of our sort of current time. Uh, and now have they seen, that's happened in a few years, it's less of a problem, the priority is public spending. So it's a cyclical thing, and they're reacting to this environment. Or there's another interpretation that's more on the left that says, actually what we had since the crash of 2008, and experience of austerity is a fundamental change in their public's kind of views and philosophy about the economy. 
and actually they don't believe anymore that free markets and low government spending is the way forward. I think the kind of Corbynistas want to believe that they um, has been a fundamental shift. Fascinating. Well, I think this is certainly something that we're going to come back to in uh, future. So thank you very much, Steve. Thank you very much, Akash. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much thank for you. listening. Um, as always, if you've enjoyed this, please share widely and make it available to all you know. And thank you very much for taking the time to listen. Thank you. Goodbye.